Hi all, and welcome back to another episode of the European VC Podcast. I'm Andreas, and today's episode is a special one as we are featuring a roundtable on winning in the current secondary market that we did on Tuesday, the 31st of October with Joe Schwartz, founding partner of Heisman Capital, Kemper Al, VP at Industry Ventures, and Martin DeWever from Flow. We really enjoyed the conversation and learned a lot about how Europe's leading secondaries investors think and approach the current market. We hope you'll enjoy it as well. Tear down this wall. It's more than just an alliance. This is a union of values. Values. United and determined, we can serve as a model for other regions of the world. The nature of a problem problem requires a European response. Europe is a story of new beginnings. New new beginnings. Let's start acting. Welcome everyone to today's EUVC roundtable on winning in the current secondary spoon. We have 600 people with us, so today should be a really fun day. First of all, let me just tell you a little bit, and I'll start by saying that I myself and Andreas, and I'm joined as always by my dear co-host, David, and we have Hello. put together... Hello, David. And we've put together quite the killer panel because we have Joe Schorch, founding partner of Heisman Capital, also the man that I call the architect of European venture, which he always smiles at and says, Andreas, don't do that. <laughs> and of course, Heisman Capital is one of Europe's leading fund of funds and also very active secondary investor in Europe. So next to... Joe, we have Kemper, and Kemper Al is the vice president or a vice president of Industry Ventures. He's also a very good friend of the EUVC pod. I think we've had him on just once, but we've tried many times, so we're very happy that we have him with us here today. And he's also a newly baked father, so everyone, right, congrats in the uh, in the in the comment section and 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 send nice pictures of your own baby, so we can all think, ah, this is amazing. If you don't yet know Kemper and Industry Ventures, you should because they've raised $1.4 billion to invest in secondaries globally earlier this year. So that means that Kemper will bring both a global and a European perspective. That's amazing. And then finally, we have Martin de Weber, CEO and founder of Flow and Force Over Mass. Force Over Mass is a VC fund and Flow is a software provider to, to the European venture ecosystem that we will hear a little more about just now, because maybe Martin, you would maybe just tell us a bit about how you tie into the, uh, the secondary space and, and, and why, you know, you think that we invited you to come on this for, for, for this conversation. Yeah. Um, uh, so basically we build infrastructure for the uh, complete private markets and, and we address all these uh, pain points that um, uh, all the different players have. So normally a lot of fintech players, they focus on just one party, uh, but we build a full stack for companies or even capital, for instance, for funds, managing their funds, a full end-to-end product that we're launching shortly uh, and for investors to invest in companies uh, and in funds. So by addressing the full ecosystem, uh, uh, we we actually can solve uh, for, uh, uh, potentially sold for, uh, creating more liquidity, both in primaries and then next year we're coming to markets with the secondary markets. 
um, backed by a non-stock exchange group, perfect partner to have uh, alongside of me. Uh, they're, they're coming to market with a, with a centralized secondary market. Uh, and on the flow side, we're coming to markets uh, uh, with a bilateral uh, secondary market. So sort of a decentralized secondary markets. Quite a lot, uh, quite a lot of stack that we, we have developed. And it's pure fintech. So it's not only technology uh, that solves problems around data and reliable data sources where we have actuals and forecasts and benchmark data to be able to do due diligence. Uh, but on top of that, we've integrated uh, financial service providing to be able to uh, provide uh, a custody, uh, escrow management, client money, you know, compliance suite uh, to deal with uh, uh, raising of capital, whether you're a fund or whether you're uh, a founder. So that kind of integration uh, is beautifully put together uh, to uh, to get rid of all these administrative nightmares that people have. So first, you know, as as a founder of a fund myself, um, I can attest to that that. Uh, you end up spending uh, something like 80% of your time doing admin. And that means less time with the entrepreneur and nobody likes that. So we, we developed some beautiful product around. Yeah, and uh, and we'll get much more into that. And I th- I'm looking forward to a discussion about secondary marketplaces and, and who they're relevant for, for how they fit into the market and everything. But that's, of course, just a small bit of the conversation today because the focus is going to be on winning in the current secondary market. And there's many different strategies there. With us as set, Joe Short and Camber, really two of your strongest players when it comes to secondaries. Um, and really two, two, two guys who can really talk to the broad, broadness of the, the asset class and or the particular opportunity there that secondaries present us with. But David, we are in a live event here, so maybe you would just tell us a bit about the house rules in a live event like this. Yeah, more than happy to. First of all, thank you everyone for joining, uh, guests and audience alike. We have some uh, very proactive fans of UVC who love to share some links that you should not follow on the comment section. I think that's the price of starting to have some reach. So I appreciate the support. But if you see that, ignore and or report. Uh, if you have questions, comments, insights, want to challenge us, whatever, please put it in the, in the comment section on LinkedIn. We will do our best to cover it all. Uh, we might not be able to do it all. Um, in, Again, please make it uh, on topic, <laughs> you know, don't ask us about, uh, you know, uh, is my startup interesting for you? Well, we're not going to, we're gonna, not going to answer that. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. I don't know. Uh, we don't have the time to look into that, but anything that's related to secondaries, how to win in the market, what's the state of the market, tips, tricks, insights, please do share with us um, and enjoy above all. This will be available on EU.VC. Um, so if you have to leave mid, leave midway through, not a problem. Just go there and check it out. Thank you, David. All right, everyone. So now I want to take us into our first section, which is really just trying to understand where we are right now with the secondaries market. Um, And Joel, I introduced you just before as the architect. So maybe let's put the spot on you here and test if you can live up to that name. No pressure. Tell us where do you see us being in the market today? Where where are we in the market? Well, you know, I, we focus on Europe, so let me kind of make some specific comments about European venture, but it is more broadly applicable, and, and Kemper can tell you how it is or how it's not. But, you know, what we've got in Europe is, is kind of a reboot of the venture capital market around the financial crisis time. So, you know, 9, 10, 11 was when many of the 
firms in Europe were getting started. And, and now we, um, what is a secondary? Well, it's, it's buying something that exists already, as opposed to primary funding of a company or putting money as an LP in the fund. So secondaries is a kind of derivative idea that uh, if you have an illiquid asset, there are people who could, could buy that along the way. And so what we have in Europe today is kind of a perfect storm because we've had about 12, 13 years, maybe 14 even, of building the stock of assets. And that's been primary money in, more investors, more firms being created, more companies being founded. So the stock of assets has grown without much secondary activity and with lots of increased capital flowing in. And as happens in each business cycle, um, that changes and people all of a sudden realize, boy, building companies takes a long time and getting DPI out of funds takes a long time. And so you have some amounts of investors who start to either they need to exit because they, they need liquidity or they want to exit because they want to rebalance their portfolios. Sometimes it's actually a good problem. Your book, your venture book grew so strongly that it now is over allocated rel- relative to the rent. So I think where we are in the market in Europe is, is amazing, probably the best position ever, biggest stock of assets ever, um, change in the business cycle, so people wanting to exit, and a reset of pricing, which is probably pretty healthy as well, so we could buy it kind of more sensible prices. Yeah, we're of course going to get much more into that and, and, and ask Joe and Kemper and Martin how they think about winning in the market, meaning the strategies and tactics they employed, how to diligence, diligence opportunities, how to find the right price and that type of thing. Um, but first, we just want to make, make sure that we all understand where we are. And for that reason, Kemper, I, I want to ask you to, 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 to comment on what Joe just said here and, and maybe add in your perspective, both as a global investor, but also just seeing things from industries here. Certainly. And um, ple- pleasure to be back here with you guys. Um, appreciate you inviting me to the to the roundtable. Um, not to state the obvious, but it's an honor to be um, on here with Joe, who's been such an important advocate for for the European venture ecosystem, uh, really since that that reset around the, the GFC. Um, I think in terms of where we are today, You'll probably hear this over and over again today, but it's um, it's an incredibly exciting market to be a venture secondaries buyer in. Um, and I think um, as a little bit of background, secondaries, private market secondaries have been around since the 80s. Um, they really sort of gained notoriety as the uh, broader private equity ecosystem matured. Um, that began to extend into the venture capital market in the early 2000s, um, particularly in the U.S. Um, but really only recently, I'd say, have venture secondaries become mainstream, really since the kind of bull market um, that kicked off after that 2008-2009 reset. And I mentioned that to highlight that it's, it's actually still a relatively uh, young um, asset class. We've been doing this at Industry Ventures for uh, for 23 years, but it was always sort of a um, sort of a niche part of the market that we operated in. I think today, you know, venture secondaries, for good reason, are are getting a lot of press because there are a lot of exciting dynamics contributing to the um, to the buying opportunity. I think you know, I'm sure we'll cover uh, a bunch of those today. Um, you know, I think in terms of 
uh, the spectrum of venture secondary buyers today, you do have still a very wide variance in terms of strategies, what size of deals different buyers can take down, which uh, deal structures different buyers will consider. Um, and that's contributed to, I think, what's a relatively uncompetitive buyer environment still, despite that massive stock of really high quality assets. Um, so we think there's a big, you know, capital uh, quality deal supply demand imbalance, um, which again is contributing to what's a really exciting market today. And then maybe Martin, I can I can call you in to comment on this because th these are the perspectives of, of of two institutional investors, obviously bigger tickets for that reason. And you're you're building with Flow a secondary marketplace, which will, I'm sure. Uh, you know, make the market more transparent and and easily or more easily accessible for 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 investors that that are not of the institutional character. Could you tell me a bit about the opportunity that you're seeing? Why do you think it's relevant to get some might say another platform to 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 broker uh, um, secondaries on? Um, because I think that's that's important, and many of of the people listening in will of course be be investing out of their own book as as angels. So for that reason. You know, it might be relevant to be be thinking of this from that perspective as well. Yeah. Uh, so, so the core kind of mission of flow is is to increase the turnover speed of this asset class. Uh, and so, I've always been fascinated with that. I used to trade very liquid asset classes in in, in all sorts of products, from a corporate hybrid debt to junk bonds to credit default swaps and etc. And so, uh, so what I'm intrigued by is that if you look at this asset class, it turns over something like 0.013 times a year compared to 100 times your public stock. So that kind of kind of signifies the uh, pure kind of addressable market that you're looking at, which is synonymically high. Uh, there is also, there are a lot of problems which at the foundation of that on how to resolve that and how to actually get from a more analog way of actually doing deal making to uh, a, a systemic way of actually turning over stock uh, in the market. And, and one of them is obviously creating an infrastructure to do that. A second one is obviously creating, um, uh, creating, uh, having enough data actually to guide, uh, a more systemic way of uh, some form of theoretical pricing, uh, some, uh, better, uh, better assessment tools and due diligence tools to do this, uh, systemically. Uh, but I think one of the most important things is to sit on a framework where all the different players can actually interact with each other. Uh, whilst safeguarding uh, data privacy uh, and, and letting private marks maintain private so that people can do deals in isolation with a group of investors, uh, with different VC firms, fund funds involved, maybe venture funds involved, and, and in that way, kind of create pockets of liquidity uh, where everybody on a system uh, can easily uh, assess, uh, assess opportunities um, in, in, a, in a very fast way. And, and that is sort of the, the, the premise of everything that we build. So if you think about our data sharing mechanisms, that sits on a graph database architecture uh, where you have that beautiful control, pinpoint control of, uh, of uh, sharing information from one party to another. Perfect for uh, Mansion House, for instance, uh, of what is being discussed at the moment with the pension market. They would like to have an easier compatibility to, uh, to, the, uh, to the fund market. Uh, but they have a different way of working. Uh, and there are some other problems that we have to resolve or to solve for that. 
Uh, so one fact, technical solutions uh, and creating an infrastructure. On the other side, what I've always been intrigued by is that the structure and the nature of a fund, for instance, uh, has been quite unchanged. Uh, we take a GPLP structure, for instance, pretty similar as the structure of uh, the 1950s, has evolved a little bit, but not to the same speed um, as uh, the technology itself. So what we have done in Flow, if you kind of deconstruct the, the fund as such, so that uh, uh, all the uh, governance structure, ownership right, uh, custody, everything sits on a certificate, and the certificate can be traded uh, at any point in time. And that will allow a new form of liquidity for funds as well. Can I ask you, Joe and Kemper, because I think obviously at EUVC as an example, one of the things we do a lot is, you know, we try and bring accessibility to, to the venture asset class by allowing people to to come in and invest invest smaller tickets. And, and part of what we do is, of course, secondary transactions. And part of this, as Martin just said, is, well, how do you get access to invest into, into funds as a secondary opportunity? I'd love to ask both of you, do you think, or could you tell me a bit about how do you break up the, the market when you're looking at secondaries? Is it a, you know, because you have, you have direct investments that, that you can do secondaries on, then you can do secondaries on, on funds. You can do secondaries where you buy you know, GP stakes, uh, out of venture funds. It can get very, very complex very quickly. Could you ask one of you to give us an overview of, of how you, how you can break this up for everyone to understand that these are the different opportunities and maybe if you can add to that the complexity level that you see to the different different opportunities that that are in the in the secondary space, it's a tough one. Who should I give first, Joe? You yeah, that's a pre. I, I, I nominate Kepper on this one. I, I'm 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 more than happy to jump in here. Uh, really good good question, um, and and happy to try and uh, sort of tie it to what to to what Martin was just speaking about as it relates to to flow and you know potential. Uh, tech innovation related to our market. Um, I think uh, the buckets that you you just highlighted, Andreas, are probably the three key ones that people think about when they think about venture secondaries, uh, directs, LP interests, and GP LEDs. Uh, a direct secondary is effectively where you purchase shares in an existing business from an existing investor, um, and you basically transfer onto the cap table of that business. Uh, an LP interest secondary is where you would purchase a partnership interest in a venture fund uh, from an existing limited partner in that fund. Um, the GP-led bucket is much broader because it includes a variety of other transaction types. But the gist of it is that you're working with the general partner of a fund to come up with some um, type of liquidity solution that can solve uh, a very unique set of needs that the GP and the underlying LPs in that fund might be optimizing for. What we see most often are continuation funds, uh, strip sales, fund restructurings. Um, we've, uh, on occasion, uh, injected new capital into 10, 15, 20-year-old funds to continue supporting the underlying businesses. Um, those can have a bit of a secondary flavor to them as well. Um, and then outside of those three buckets, I'd, I'd say there's a long tail of other transaction types, everything from uh, corporate spinouts to collateralized sort of, um, you know, preferred secondary LP interests that can apply to both 
portfolios of direct positions, individual directs, LP interests, um, and others. It is a it is a very complex and I think intentionally opaque market. Um, every deal probably looks a little bit different, and I think the more institutional buyers in the market have had to think very creatively about how to adapt to their product offerings to counterparties because most counterparties have a very unique and different set of needs. Um, I also think that's why it's been very difficult to automate um, portions of our market to make it more efficient. I think there's a lot of room for innovation. Somewhat ironically, we operate you know, in tech, but um, what we do from a transaction perspective is still a relatively low tech um, part of the process. Um, how that happens and when, I, I'm not sure. I think, uh, you know, there are probably a lot of people in the ecosystem who would rather keep it somewhat opaque. Um, good information, reliable information is very difficult to come by as a secondary buyer. Um, I'm, I'm not sure what the world looks like where uh, companies and general partners sort of open up, um, uh, you know, repositories of information for potential buyers to price assets. I think um, companies and funds are also very selective about who they want on their cap table, who they want in their partnership. Um, and I think, you know, the platform, Martin, it sounds like this is what you're building, but a platform where GPs and CEOs can maintain that level of discretion um, and uh, dictate who gets that information, but just make yeah. things a little bit smoother is, 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 is probably the right solution. And we and we actually had a question come in uh, before before the, uh, the 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 event here from Matthias Pastor from Semper, and he asked us, "What do you think is preventing sing single asset growth secondaries from trading 10x more, and who benefits from the overall lack of transparency around the real value of common stock and most venture backed startups?" Um. So, Mark, the first question, if we if you know if we touch on that one, which is why is it that we're not seeing secondaries trade more? And I'm, I'm, I'm thinking that it, that's kind of what we've been talking about, right? That the intransparency in the market, the, the, the meaning the difficulty of connecting a a, a seller with a should I call it adequately sophisticated buyer, and also one which has and 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 this is how I understand the secondary market, also one which actually has an investment strategy that will fit with that asset. Because what we're often seeing is smaller, smaller sales or people with, with smaller stakes that they want to sell, but then they go to an industry like player and, and what they're, they hear is, well, 5 million, and then we can talk. Maybe both Joe and Kemper Martin, you can talk to this difficulty of matching the sellers and, and, and buyers in Europe and, and, and how you're seeing an individual seller or an individual buyer can overcome that uh, if you if you come from a maybe less institutional perspective than than what you do. Joe, can I call you call on you to come first? Yeah, I mean I disagree with the first part of the question, which is why are we not seeing more sales? Because they we're not seeing more buyers. People are not banging down the door to buy this stuff. Kemper is a rare animal. Uh, you know, and we we look up to to his firm and to him and how all the sophisticated structures they've come up with. But, you know, what I hear in, in what Kemper just described is fundamentally, we're trying to solve a problem. Something didn't run to plan. 
So, you know, someone invested in a company or in a fund and it's the duration of the whole period is longer than the original vehicle plan. So we, okay, well, how about a continuation? How do we make that stretch longer, you know? Or the strip idea is, hey, I own a big basket of really interesting stuff, but I really need cash. So I don't want to sell it all to you, Kemper. I just, but can you buy a piece of it, right? And so so all these solutions have fundamentally arisen out of some need the seller has. And so what we're really talking about is liquidity solutions. All of these, these things we'd come up with are, in the beginning, it was just, I'll buy what you have. And then we couldn't agree on price. So, well, can we structure something so that we share the profit over, you know, over the life of the thing and, and so on and so forth. And, and so when I look at, you know, the first part of the question is, why don't we see more sales? Well, because we're not seeing that many buyers. P- people are not banging down our door saying, you know, I really need to buy into something. Um, it's hard work. It's complex. There is data asymmetry. I don't see that going away for the reasons that Kemper mentioned. Um, but also, there has to be an incentive to share the data, right? What, what we tend to buy is things we're already part of. So we're already on the cap table of a company or we're already an LP in a fund. So we can buy that fund from a position of some, some amount of knowledge. Whereas if you show me something that I'm not part of, um, I've got to somehow convince the manager of that asset or the owner of that asset to, to share all that data uh, so that I can even think about what I'd, what I'd be willing to pay. So my, my guess is that if you go back to this bigger secondaries market in the 90s, there were no brokers. There was certainly no tech. It was just a buyer talking to a seller. And I, I know that because my old boss started his firm in those days and he would say, you know, we never thought this was an industry or there would be intermediaries. And of course, now that's extremely sophisticated. So I think what, what Martin and Flo are doing is taking the next, next step on that evolution and trying to introduce some automation. But there's always an amount of transaction work that happens outside. You know, depending on the complexity, depending on pe- people may not want transparency, you know, and, and I'm sure you see it too, Kemper. Hey, I'd like to sell this to you, but no one can ever know. <laughs> lose face in the market or it'll have a market signal to future investors in the asset. Or, you know, there can be many reasons that actually private markets work well by being private and that a, a, a symmetry of information is actually a good thing. Um, so I've not totally lost track of the. Uh, no, no. But what, you, what you're saying, Joe, is is actually a great pivot into talking about how to win in the market because I think we now have established that we're seeing, we're actually we are seeing a great boom. I thought when I wrote the title of this, of this webinar, can I write boom or should I just write market? Because it's like, is that taking it too far? Uh, I, I'm seeing some nodding and smiling, so I think that Joe and Kemper and Martin. <laughs> would all say, well, maybe it is taking it too far, but definitely we're seeing a good trend and growth in, in, in the secondary market. We're seeing more activity, we're seeing more people coming to it. So that's great. It's definitely also the buyer side that we're seeing maybe being, especially in the car market, um, a, a bit less active than we might hope for. Um, so with that, I want to take us into the winning part of, 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 of this segment or, or of this, this interview or, or round table and ask you, Kemper, if you could first tell us how you at industry think about your investment strategy in the secondary space. Absolutely. Um, I'll try and keep it relatively brief. Um, just a bit of background. I was got 30 moments. Go ahead, bro. On our secondary strategy. Um, 
we're we're basically a structurally agnostic buyer of late stage venture assets. Um, you know, we're laser focused on specific businesses that we want exposure to in our fund. Um, and we will buy exposure to those businesses uh, through whichever structure we think gives us uh, the most attractive pricing, um, sort of risk profile uh, and alignment with counterparties, companies, funds, et cetera. That flexibility has been a huge advantage for us over the last 23 years. Um, different structures are more or less attractive during different parts of the cycle. There are more deal flow from certain pockets of seller types and um, within those different buckets that we talked about earlier based on um, you know, what the broader market is doing. So I think we're you know, like any other investor in that we know the companies that we want to buy. What's different is that we'll think really creatively about how to you know, structure our way into those, into those businesses. In terms of what we look for, you know, I think late stage is, is probably a bit of a moving target, uh, especially these days. We're often looking at companies that we think are IPO quality, but that have uh, a variety of potential different exit pathways, uh, whether that's M&A, buyout, et cetera. So today that's you know, companies with at least 50 million of revenue that are growing quickly enough to potentially list uh, whenever the IPO window opens back up, but that also have uh, strategic value to a corporate or um, are uh, you know, interesting enough in terms of their financial profile that a buyout fund might get really excited about them as well. Um, I think that's really key. Um, you know, if, you're, if you're running a secondaries fund and you're just buying the short list of super late stage decacorn businesses that look like they're going to be first on deck to IPO uh, whenever that IPO window does reopen, um, you're really subject to um, sort of market dynamics. And it could take a lot longer for that to happen. And the pricing environment like, might look very different. So I think building that sort of layer cake of you know, high growth, late stage businesses, but also you know, other interesting types of companies that um, you know, may produce liquidity a little bit sooner is super important. And just to highlight, because um, you know, Matthias uh, mentioned it specifically in, in his question, you know, I think uh, common stock today is a, is a tough proposition. Um, you know, I think we're seeing a lot of companies that have raised a lot of capital at very high valuations over the last, uh, you know, five plus years. Uh, a lot of those businesses are now coming back to market, looking to raise more capital. And the structures of those primary financing rounds can be very onerous on the existing securities in those businesses. Um, particularly so for common stockholders. And I think that's why you've seen, you know, a lot of institutional buyers rethink where they want to buy in the capital stack. And for that reason, I think it's become a little bit more different, sorry, difficult to go sell uh, a common stock position. Um, so, you know, I, I think in terms of where we're focused today, uh, it's probably more on senior preferred securities uh, LP interests that consist of preferred securities where we feel good about the residual value uh, of those securities in a, a different sort of exit environment than what we saw in 2020, 2021. I'd love to ask you, Joe, if you, because before you said that the way you often buy secondaries in, in assets that you already know, is that how you think about it purely or do you also source outside outside of the, the existing pond and, and and, and look like that? 
Well, so I should categorize. We, we relative to camper and industry, we have a tiny secondary program. And it's a part of our primary program, if you will. So we invest in funds, we co-invest in companies. And the way we've always executed secondaries since, since the day we started was really just to tell our, our partners, fellow LPs, the VCs we work with, company founders, um, hey, we're in this for the long term with you, but things happen along the way. We know that. So if you ever want to exit or need to exit or um, you know, you hear about another LP looking exit, let, let us know. And it always is easy to buy more of something you know and love already. So that's the, you know, we, we have a lot of data. We are sit on a lot of LPACs. We sit on a lot of companies and so on. And so that's where we really start. And, you know, there's already a lot of flow just in that. We have over 2,000 companies in Europe in our portfolios. Uh, our GPs have, have a couple of hundred funds they operate. So just just sticking to that is already a, a really big flow. And it's been super, uh, super value additive to everyone around the table because a lot of the GPs we've done secondaries with, they never did a secondary before. They don't know what it is. They're young firms themselves. So we finally do a lot of education. Well, here's how it works and here's what we would do. And uh, and then pricing is always, you're, you're kind of hinting at it, Kemper. I think everybody has the last round valuation in their mind. Well, that's what it's worth. And companies are not worth A or B. They're worth what someone's willing to pay, either on a primary round or, or later, just like the stock market. It's, pricing is what somebody bought the last share at, right? <laughs> so... What we often find ourselves saying is, well, if we own this asset today and we look forward, what do we think could happen? When would it exit and what sort of price? And if you kind of discount back by your target return, you have the price you'd be willing to pay. And you think, well, we, we often find ourselves also saying, look, this is what we'd pay today. If that's interesting for you, great. If it's not, let's talk again in three or six months because the world changes. You know, the outlook changes, the revenue curve of the company grows and, and we'll reconsider that in three months, six months. So it's also a very uh, point in time kind of analysis of buying things. If I, if I may jump in guys, I'd love, you know, I'd love to pull in and reel in some of the, um, of the questions and comments we received so far and to anyone listening and please keep them coming. I'll, I'm doing my best to, to sort through them and pick the, the most relevant ones for everyone. I have a, a, a question that I'll, I'll put out there um, with, our, with our panel here, which comes from Christian Evans. Christian is, is joining from the US. Thank you for joining. And based on his LinkedIn profile, I guess he's the founder and an aide. And his question is around the fact I'm going to read out now. Most retail investors struggle with completing proper DD and underwriting of these companies because we don't have access to the cap table, executive team, financials, et cetera. So with that being said, how do you bridge that gap to complete proper DD for these companies? I'd like to reframe this question slightly not necessarily retail investors, but less experienced investors or new investors into the space, because that is a bit of a broader, a broader, a broader, um, let's, I don't know, group of, of potential individuals and, and organizations. Martin, I'd love to really win and, and, and challenge you with this one. Uh, what, what, how, how can you bridge this gap? Yeah, I, you know, this, uh, this is one of the core, uh, the, the earliest problems that we start addressing and that is, um, how do we increase the level of quality of data uh, uh, that uh, that we produce at low uh, for parties to be able to make uh, a good assessment whether to uh, invest or not? And so 
so we are a data processor uh, compared to all the parties in the market that scrape uh, and, and, and look for some truth in uh, scraping, uh, uh, scraping the web. And so as a result of that, uh, we consistently process full financial models, are part of the due diligence cycle, have accountants check uh, for uh, certain accounting errors and et cetera. And in that way, uh, we can actually deliver uh, a very high quality data set uh, for anyone in a very easy, uh, uh, usable construct. So on a mobile phone, for instance, like you're used to investing in crypto, it's the same type of experience. You probably have even more information at your fingertips tips that you would have on, the, on a Revolut, for instance, investing in, in, in public stocks because you might have month-to-month data, for instance. So I think this level of consistency of creating quality, uh, quality data for, for anyone to make an assessment whether to invest or not is really important. That's around the technology piece of things. But I read a question earlier as well, which is around this data uh, information asymmetry problem in the market. And I love that problem because it's a very interesting one. And I think uh, I completely agree with everybody else that uh, you shouldn't fully democratize information to this, uh, that everybody has the same set of information because that's not how it works. Uh, the market would actually come to a standstill if you do something like that. I think people should have access to the information uh, if they have access to that information. And uh, we just build a lot of tooling actually to process that more consistently and to build up a data warehouses and the permission actually uh, to that particular data warehouse of their ecosystem, I mean, the ecosystem, for instance. And so, but what we did do is, is say, if we run the primary market transaction on our, uh, on our platform, um, we run it through a vehicle, which is a, a unique type of SPV structure, tax transparent, but more importantly, uh, it has data warranties on there. And the data warranties allow uh, for uh, for the owner actually of the stock to uh, to bring somebody else up to par uh, with the same information to make that uh, to make that assessment, and so with that combined with the technology, with pinpoint the control, and with an alignment actually of the companies itself, so that they can start making money out of running secondary, even as a little bit money. Uh, but I think that full alignment of the players that are necessary actually to create liquidity whilst not ruining the market uh, by flooding it with uh, everyone the information, I think that's the right construct. So you don't change the way people currently operate. This makes it a lot easier uh, for, for people to run both primaries and secondaries. And when we run a primary at the moment, we say, okay, let's do it through the rails where we have secondaries by design. And we do the same kind of principle with funds. When funds are coming now to new fund products, it's more flexible, it is rails, where it has secondaries by design, both from a technical perspective, as well as from a financial engineering perspective. Kemba, I'd love to ask you almost the same question, right? But from the non-tech angle, but from the investor angle. Um, so, because the question is really, that's how I think about it at least, how do you go about diligencing a deal and, and finding the right price for you? And I'd love to understand, understand your, your take on this to, and be as concrete as you can when when it comes to tactics and everything. And if I may, sorry for interrupting there, Kemper and Andrea, but if I may, I remember the first time I looked at a secondary and uh, someone in this panel helped me <laughs> through that process. I learned something incredibly interesting, which is how important the, how important the timing is in that process of diligencing. So 
uh, what I mean there is if, if we're talking about a fund secondary, it's very different if it's year three or year 10, right? It's a completely different DD process. Same applies for, for startups, right? Whether they're on the stage. So, so Kemper, I'd love if you could also uh, expand a tiny bit on that. That would be super insightful. Yeah, that's a great addition, David. Um, and yeah, just to maybe answer, you know, your, your question, Andreas, as well as Christian's from, from my perspective. It's a really good one. I mean, um, secondaries are not just hard for retail investors. They're hard for professional investors too. And not to be too repetitive, because I think we've, we've said this a bunch, but that's because good information is, is tough to come by in this market. I think Joe just said this really well, but there is a huge advantage to having an existing sort of broader platform when you're doing secondaries. Um, we like Isomer invest in funds, invest in companies and do secondaries across the spectrum of tech. Um, you know, that gives us a really interesting, uh, hunting grounds from a sourcing perspective, but also, um, you know, a massive data set off of which, um, we can price a huge number of companies. We've got about 7,000, uh, underlying portfolio companies today. So if we're looking at a portfolio, there's a pretty good chance that we have exposure to one or multiple uh, of those underlying companies um, and we get some level of uh, financial reporting on those businesses, which gives us a big leg up. If someone, you know, if an LP calls you and says, I want to sell you my fund interest, oftentimes the best set of data that you're going to get from that LP is the set of fund financials, which may just list the name of the companies and the cost and the value of those businesses um, and their capital account statement without any substantive information on the businesses themselves. So I think that's, you know, as a retail investor or any investor without that sort of broader data set, um, I would have to imagine that buying that interest and pricing it accurately would be nearly impossible. Um, so we, you know, we, we leverage that sort of broader platform that we have to identify companies that we think are interesting, um, but also to, to do our, our DD work. That platform approach to venture secondaries, I think, is what works best. And for that reason, there is a big incumbent advantage uh, in the market. Uh, you just said something. You just said something, Kimber, that I have to ask you about. You said you said it without that data set and insight. I think that would be almost a secondary deal would be almost impossible to do for me. Does that mean that if you were not with industry but you had your own? say you had 5 million in the bank or something like that, you would say, no, I'm not doing secondaries because it's too hard? It's a good question. Um, you know, there was a, a sharp increase in retail activity in venture secondaries in 2020, 2019 through 2021, basically, because the category was producing fantastic returns. Um, those were record years of liquidity for the asset class. And you could go buy common stock and um, sometimes that company would IPO in three to six months and you could make a fantastic return. The equation changes a bit in, in, in today's market or even just a, a normalized market where you, you do the, um, Christian asked about, you know, how do you, how do you, how do you buy a direct secondary if you don't have the cap table? Um, it's really tough because you don't know where your security sits in the stack. Uh, you don't know what proceeds that security is entitled to at different exit values, different exit types. I would say with a with with five million dollars uh, to invest in venture, um, I think that there are probably more sort of risk advantaged um, approaches to to deploying that five million where you get a little bit more diversification. You invest in a 
in a fund that does what, you know, what we do, what Isomer does, there are, there are plenty of them who are really good at it. Um, I think. Well, what know, if I get a secondaries in one of those? <laughs> no, I'm, I'm kidding. You. Um, Joe, I want to ask you a question. Um, and that goes, goes to, to, to this whole notion of whether you can time the market or not, because Kemper just said, well, we had a lot coming in from 2019 to 2021 because secondaries performed very well. And, and obviously that then means that there were people that did make a fortune in that period, um, by getting in and getting out. Would you say that secondaries is different from normal venture in the sense that the rule about not being able to game the market or time the market actually doesn't apply here? Because, you know, everyone, I think the majority could recognize the bubble. We all knew that it was going to burst at some point. And then it's a bet on, well, if it's, if it's going to exit in six months, most likely, am I willing to take that bet that we won't crash before six months? You know, do you think, can you, can you go about it as such as a retail um, secondary cowboy? Well, no. This is my quick answer. So I wouldn't try to time the market. Uh, I don't think you can, and I don't think history is good. There are quick slips at work. I mean, Kecker and I watch them go by and it's like, gee, why didn't I do that? That's amazing. But, it, you know, it's hard to figure out how much of that was luck and how much of that was skill. The winner always tells you it was skill. Um, the loser always tells you it was bad luck. I mean, but I'm reminded this timing point that David brought up. I'm reminded that some years ago, uh, Kemper, you and I tried to do a deal together and it was a beautiful deal. I was super excited about it. I think certain documents were signed. It was ready to close. And then one of the star assets within the deal exited. And so it was, so the deal was off because the seller no longer needed cash. There was an interesting, so I don't think you can time the market, but you can certainly time the asset. And the deal was kind of saying, Hey, this. This is a great uh, portfolio of assets. There's one in particular that looks like a skyrocket and it will exit. And I'll never forget, I was, I was driving when the call came in to say, uh, hey, good news and bad news. The good news is that star exit, it really is a star and it just sold at a very high price. And bad news is the secondary deal is off because the seller no longer needs to sell. So there's a you know really specific, and that was a, you know, one of many lessons we've learned about timing. Um, when you want to, we always ask a few questions. First of all, is this an asset we'd like to own or own more of? Because I believe in venture, you must buy high quality. The dispersion of returns is very high. So if you buy into something good, you, you can have a, a big upside. If you buy into something that's not working, you can lose everything, which is different than private equity secondaries where they're more, you know, banded. The second thing is, okay, let's, if we do want to own more, can we get access to the management and the information? And maybe we have it already because of the platform effects that Kemper described, or maybe it's simply that the GP in question is very open and communicative or the company management. So if we would buy direct into a company, we'd always want to talk to the company itself. Um, it would be very hard for us to buy, at least at this point in sort of arm's length. So we talk to the CEO and we... <laughs> talk through, are you happy with the sale? How does, you know, maybe you're involved, maybe you're not, but you, know, you need to approve it so on. Um, and, and on the way then, okay, we can get information. Then can we see a time period that makes sense as a secondary transaction and return that makes sense? 
um, and then and then you negotiate with the seller. That's the so it is kind of a complicated thing. I don't buy that it's more complicated for retail than the rest of us. I think the difference is the platform advantage that Kemper describes is is powerful, and because you know you will have all these information problems, you build the information access in advance. Then you just said the beautiful word. Then 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 you negotiate a price. So let's get to that. And I think I actually want to start with the question, which was one of the first questions I asked you, Joe, when we started talking about secondaries. And that was, well, aren't there some rules of thumb that I can kind of, you know, if it's a, if it's a GP secondaries in year two, then I should get about 20% discount, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. Are there none of those or are there some yardsticks that you can kind of, uh, kind of use when you, when you go about doing, doing a secondary transaction. I'll let whoever of you want to go first, uh, go first. Kemper, you look like you're about to unmute. Yeah. Happy to take a stab at, at, at that one. Um, you know, I think, um, Joe touched on how he thinks about underwriting earlier. We're very similar. We think about where a company is in its life cycle when we think it will exit and what sort of valuation it will garner at exit that dictates a very narrow band of prices that we can pay today for that company, whether it's a standalone or in a broader portfolio of businesses. So when we're, um, when we're trying to do a deal with someone, um, we, you know, we have potentially some flexibility within that band, but it's, it's not, it's typically not a massive range. Um, so I think, you know, Joe said a bit earlier, we'll often say to folks, if we don't have pricing alignment, Let's revisit in three to six months when we have more visibility into how the company's performing according to its plan for the year um, or where the broader market is. Yeah, I think um, there are a number of really interesting structural options that you can use to bridge potential gaps in that sort of bid ask. Those are some of the structural innovations that you know we've, we've touched on um, today during the course of the roundtable. Um, those aren't always a fit uh, um, um, for the slow minded here. Could you translate structural innovations for me? <laughs> not to get too, not to get too far into the weeds here, but there are secondary deal types where, um, the discount isn't necessarily a relevant metric. Uh, for example, if you're investing, um, into a preferred structure where you're basically saying, I'll put. X number of dollars against uh, X dollars of value. And I want the first, um, call it 2X out of the vehicle. Um, the discount there isn't actually uh, uh, something you would, you would think about. So, you know, if you're looking at a deal and you'd say, I'll, I'll pay $10 for this asset, um, that price may not work. Maybe it's valued at $30 at the last round. Um, you say, I'm willing to put in $5 against that, that value but I want the first 10 back. That may be a little bit more palatable for the counterparty um, because they're not thinking, you know, hey, I'm selling at a 66% discount. They're thinking, hey, I've got a fixed cost of capital associated uh, with this uh, deal that has sort of a secondary flavor to it. Um, that's one example. There are, there are a number. Um, but I think, you know, again, I, I said this a bit earlier, the market has had to be very creative in adapting to the needs of, of sellers. And I think... Um, there's a great uh, cohort of buyers today. They've done a really good job of that. And the market's become very sophisticated in that regard. 
Now, let me ask a different question, and that is because we, we had someone asking about if you have the if you're building the platform or if you don't have the platform like you you do, can you then build that via relationship building and networking? Is there a sourcing strategy that you can devise as an individual that doesn't have that big portfolio that, that kind of mimics the dynamic? Um, and, 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 and Martin, I, I'll invite you to come in afterwards to tell me a bit about where do secondary platforms fit into this? Because that's, of course, one way to, 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 to at least get discovery. Well, uh, you go first. I could take a stab at, at that one. Um, I'm forcing myself not to get into the structure chat, although that would be really fun with Kemper, but. Just um, <laughs> quiet. No, but what can you do? You know, if you, if you think about uh, what assets you might want to buy, that's, you know, we talk about secondaries like it's just a big generic bucket of stuff, but, but it's not. It's um, countries and sectors and stages. And so if you're, um, whether you're a big institution or just an individual, thinking about what you might like to own uh, is a good start. And secondly, well, who owns that today? At the, at the end, it's very simple. A secondary, you could only buy something that already exists. And so if you target that, well, somebody owns it today. So who owns it, right? So if you think about, uh, there's some funds in Europe with many, with a long tail of high net worth investors. So one example of a strategy would be, well, let me try to meet those high net worth investors. Maybe I go to the AGM of a, of a fund with that kind of LP based, and I make it known during the day, hey, I'd love to buy more. You know, maybe I'm already an LP, but th there's a very simple strategy you can do. And an institutional fund won't buy a small piece. But, uh, but an individual could. And, and so everybody with a fund strategy in the same way that a, that a growth fund isn't going to do a, a 500K chicken in a seed round, right? Also, a very large secondary fund isn't going to be able to buy a, a 1 million piece or a 500K piece or a 100K piece. And we do, we do see that. We do buy sometimes where it doesn't even move the needle on our funds. But we do it because we're already there. Only a little bit more is easy. And also having, uh, being a good partner to some of our VCs means that maybe it's a small deal today and it's a bigger deal tomorrow. So we, we get those approaches where, Hey, I've got a 200 K piece and you know, I'm buying a house. I sometimes I call it the cash for houses program because more times than not with these little, little, um, pieces that come up, there's a bit, it's so funny. Oh, why are you still going? Oh, my wife saw this house or, you know, I, whatever is happening, um, I have a problem over here and I need to need to get some cash. So I think there's a, there are different strategies in the different segments of the market. And, you know, buying into that pre-IPO company that Kemper described earlier, that's really a big game. You need a lot of capital. You need a lot of analytics. You need a team like, like you have. Uh, but if you're an angel buying a position from another angel, you know, you've probably been getting quarterly reporting on that some time. And so you can understand what you're buying. I don't know, one, that's one thought. I'm sure yeah. you probably have others. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think you, you, you already said quite a few things around there is a, there are different segments of the market and different segments can use different approaches actually to gain access to the asset class. And perhaps, uh, hopefully we can actually play a role 
in, uh, in facilitating that and making that a little bit easier. Um, so I think bucketing, for instance, and creating risk buckets, uh, is something that is very interesting for pension funds, for instance, that want to gain access, not to one company, but to FinTech, uh, as a whole, for instance, or AI and et cetera. And I think a lot of, uh, angel investors, uh, would also benefit from a more diversified approach towards venture, uh, because the, the lack of, uh, large sums of money make it quite risky actually to put all your bets on, uh, on, um, on, and uh, put them all in one basket. So I think the, what we are really working on, how do we, how do we create uh, liquidity, uh, for different players in different mechanisms, bilaterally or centralized. And so, uh, when you have the big fund of funds, like, uh, we have over here. It is much more pinpointed actually towards particular names out there and reverse inquiry. Whereas if you have a pension fund, it will be much more gaining access to a well diversified, uh, group of VCs that wishing to mediate that further whilst mainly control. So it's all, for me, it's all liquidity is quite, uh, is not just one place. It is, uh, all sorts of pockets of liquidity and, uh, and I think uh, that you gain more, the more you do in this space, the more transactions you have done, the more exposure you have to different companies, obviously you have more data and you become better at it, but that's a good functioning market. So I think that's how, uh, healthy financial markets work is that if people are active, uh, they have more data and have a better chance actually of producing certain results. And so, uh, I've no ambition to change that mechanism actually in the market. The only thing that I would like to do is to find new ways of actually adding liquidity that currently isn't there. So for me, I looked at the ETF market, for instance, looked at indexation and uh, can indexation play a role in the, in this, in the, as a liquidity, uh, how do we run certain auction processes to achieve that using technology? Uh, and so for me, that, that's where I'm very interested in, in, in starting to explore and run, run tests in the market exchange for, for that. Very cool. I just got a question in from as someone called Shruti and her question is, is it advisable? And I'll ping this to you, David, is it advisable for syndicates to consider the secondary market as a form of exit and a follow-up question, what are the risks involved in depending on the stage of investments made? Very simple question. <laughs> now, maybe, maybe I can also reel in. Ari just shared a question like 10 seconds ago saying, would you invest in SPV holding shares of a single company as, a po as opposed to a direct secondary investment? So SPV is doing secondaries, right? Very similar topic. Um, I think to, you know, to be honest, I think a lot, a lot of it is the same as what Kemper and Joe are, are kind of already shared in the process that they have themselves, right? So selling, selling, selling secondaries that, that are in an SPV or selling the whole SPV, whatever, whatever the, the approach is there. At the end of the day, it's what's the asset or another, like who's the buyer, right? Who the hell would want to buy this? Because if it's an SPV that is doing small tickets and then it's only part of that SPV, well, we just 10 X the difficulty of that deal. Cause who's the buyer? Who the hell's going to buy that? If it's the whole vehicle. Well, maybe then maybe there's something there, uh, but again, who's the buyer and what's the asset? Because Kemper just said common stock. Being a tough one, that's where most SPVs, I think, are these days. They have common stock, especially the ones that we're seeing uh, popping up everywhere. So could, can you actually pull off selling that? 
if you can, well, that's a cool start to the conversation. If you can, you know, that, that, that's that. But what, what I, what I would say from what we see and this, the first few deals that we're doing, I think that it all comes down to the motivations of, of the players within that SPV. So in our, in our specific case, we have iNetWorths and we have families investing with us, right? They have very different motivations. And so would they all want to sell? Because that all leads us to the governance and decision-making in SPVs, which is an incredibly complex and annoying and non-optimized setup in every single kind of SPV I've seen to date almost, right? And so if you can only do majority decision-making, oh, okay, so everyone needs to want to sell, but also everyone needs to agree on the price to sell. Well, if you have 10 guys to agree on that, good luck. I think it's an incredibly hard deal to pull off. In theory, yes, of course, it's a great way to get liquidity. I, I don't, I haven't seen it done myself, um, but I think that's where plat platforms can play a role. Some platforms are doing, and I don't, I don't know, Martin, if you have a very specific view to a topic like this. I don't know if this is something that, that you guys have a worldview on at all. Yeah, we, we've created quite a unique SPV, uh, which is different from other VCs. We, we try to achieve something which is almost like a, uh, the impossible for the SPV to remain tax transparent, to operate like a trust, and then be globally tradable. But we, you know, basically meant that Lakeham went to work for about a year, uh, and, and so it, it works as a depository receipt system. So, so in that in that way, you get quite close to a the way a common stock would operate. Uh, but there are a lot of other SPVs out there. SPVs SPVs have been used. Uh, for ages for different structures, just warehouse. And so, uh, like with any structure, uh, you need to understand, need to understand the, the legal repercussions of the structure itself. So it will require quite a lot of work actually for it. So it depends a little bit, uh, uh, you know, what has been put in that, if it does it grant actually the amount of assets you want to put in there. So uh, that, that's the complexity of private capital markets and hopefully, you know, that's why we run everything to the same structure. It's, it's one structure. It, it is operated uh, to operate globally. Um, and it's designed for this. It's, it's specifically and uniquely designed uh, for this. But yeah, if you want to go structure by structure, yeah, you need experts. It, it's not easy to do that. Uh, and no, uh, that's it's not the, that's all, something I would recommend um, things we're invested to jump in doing that <laughs> all right so with this very exciting webinar now being done and us having given a bunch of cautionary tales about uh thinking things through thinking about uh the complexities that are in in in, in secondaries but also giving some clear guidance on how you might be able to go about it if you're uh, if you if you if you're interested in becoming a more active secondaries investor and also Especially a thank you to to Flow for for building their platform and and and, and helping us all get more access to the uh, to the secondary markets as well as to all the VCs that are are trying to build more lean operations in that to run their to run their firms because that is definitely also a hassle and something we could talk for hours on and I know that everyone in this call would be very queued up to talk about the operational hassle of running a venture firm, but everyone. Thanks so much for tuning in and joining us for this round table. Joe, you've been amazing as always. Let's bring the architect's face up there. That's the guy you want to go to. 
in the middle of the matrix we've got Kemper here smiling laughing he's a happy daddy send him uh huge congratulations on that role i want to thank you again our dear friend um we are so happy you you joined us martin and david my dear co-founder thank you for being my best friend and buddy and now i'll just say bye to everyone and thank you all for joining us don't forget to head on over to eu.bc to stay in the loop with everything venture and go to flow.io and keep an eye out for their fund services as well as their secondary marketplace when it comes out live tear down this wall it's more than just an alliance this this is a union of values of values United and determined, we can serve as a model for other regions of the world. The nature of a problem, problem requires a European response. Europe is a story of new beginnings, new, new beginnings. Let's start acting, acting, acting.